Next time you tee it up, grab the Callaway golf ball that tour players like John Rahm and Xander Schauffele play, Chrome Soft. There's Chrome Soft with soft feel, great distance, and short game control, and Callaway's most popular tour ball, Chrome Soft X, with workability plus amazing greenside action. So you've got options. Now, with the new Chrome Soft X LS, Callaway's low spinning tour ball that delivers max distance off the tee. Chrome Soft isn't just better, it's better for everyone. Find your Chrome Soft at callawaygolf.ca. Facial recognition data isn't new, but its use is growing and it's changing the world. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, my guest is Wendy Wong, a professor of political science at the University of Toronto, where she's also a research lead at the Schwartz-Riesman Institute for Technology and Society. Wong is an advocate for data literacy, which is different from digital literacy, and that generally means the ability to use a smartphone or tablet. But data literacy is about being literate and aware of the many ways that our data is collected and how it's used. In one example, she said many people have posted pictures of their family and friends to photo sites like Flickr, never realizing they were actually feeding a facial recognition database that has the name Megaface. We talked about the data economy and specifically the way that the datafication of our personal identities is changing the world. As always, the interview is edited for clarity and brevity. Wendy Wong, hi, and it's great to have you on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So the topic today is datafication. And you've written that when our faces become data through facial recognition technology, a part of who we are floats freely. And I'm wondering if you can explain what you meant by that. To really answer this question, I think we need to sort of first think about some of the qualities that make digital data so convenient and, in fact, such a revolutionary development in human history. So digital data are highly replicable and shareable. And, you know, in our daily lives, we're making copies and transferring those data from device to device without thinking about it. But I think one of the problems with that quality that we enjoy is that once we start talking about data about people, is that, you know, once such data are created, um, there really isn't a good way to ensure a chain of custody of who has a copy of the data about a person. So in essence, copies of data about people, whether that's their facial data or otherwise, can ostensibly be deleted, but there's no real way to actually know if they're truly deleted. And I think, you know, a lot of us are familiar with seeing people's old tweets kind of come back to haunt them, even though they've deleted it. So, you know, deleting a post doesn't mean it's gone forever. In fact, it's probably not. It's probably somewhere um, we just don't know about. And so I like to talk about the stickiness of data because of these qualities. It sort of sticks for a number of reasons. So it really matters when we talk about facial data or when our faces are made into data because faces are such an integral part of who we are. When our faces are not just pictures, they're actually what some people call face prints, it ends up floating freely in the sense that we don't know exactly who has that data about our faces. And it's hard to verify how those data are being used. Because I think the most important fact in this story is that you might have a face and it's in fact yours in the sense that it's part of your body. But the data about your face aren't actually made by you. You're the source of the data, but someone else, so a company, a researcher, or whoever else, makes those data and stores those data and analyzes those data. And so that's what I mean when I say that the data about your face are floating freely. They're, they're beyond your agency. And I think you're, a large part of your research is driving towards this idea that as a society, we need to think more about data, how it 
you've said alters our autonomy and alters our dignity. Can you give an example to demonstrate what you mean by this? Sure. And, and we're really talking about data about people and not data in general. So data about people are important because they can really offer insight into what people think, what they do, you know, what they're feeling, what they like. I mean, these are all the data that are being collected about us in our interactions with digital technology. So they tell us who people are. You know, some people have said that Google knows each of us better than we know ourselves, right? So, or, or at least our, our intimates know us. So if a company or if anybody has insight into who people are, what they do, what they like, what they think, you can really start to affect how people live their lives, how they understand the world from what they have to choose, and in a lot of ways, how other people treat them. And this is really what I mean by affecting our autonomy, right? Our ability to, to live our lives more or less in, in our accordance with our own volition. And also this idea of dignity, which is about how people treat us, right? So I think putting in terms of human rights, it's about treating people as ends in themselves and not means to an end. And I think that data about people, the collection of and, and the analysis of data about people are actually shifting those terms a little bit. So, you know, it affects our choices. And so how we can think about this in terms of social media, this idea of autonomy. So, you know, I think a lot of us are familiar with how social media algorithms tend to work. They tend to, you know, give people more of what they like based on previous activity or activity of people like them, right? So data, data allows companies to make predictions about what we want to do or, or what we want to see, and then they feed us more of it. So Facebook's newsfeed is notorious uh, as an example for this. And so it's enabling us to get more content of what we want. And some people say, well, that's giving me more autonomy. But it also limits what you can see. And so that's also going to shape the way you understand the world. And we can see how this has affected us in real life with, you know, the anti-vaxxer movement, with the U.S. presidential election in, in 2020. So data can affect your autonomy. And we can think about it in, in a couple of ways, right? Whether it's enabling you to see more of what you want and engage with people who are like you or to limit what you can know about the world. Yeah, the echo box effect. Exactly. I also think, though, that many people feel indifferent because although there are examples of law enforcement and, you know, governments potentially using data for surveillance, for the most part, it feels more mundane. It's it, like it's just being used for targeted advertising. What kind of event would wake people up that suggests that our data is actually being used for, you know, like you said, sort of really changing our experience in a way that could be very harmful? Yeah. And, you know, I actually have to agree with the fact that a lot of the datafication is quite mundane in effect because it is recording very mundane activities. That's actually what makes datafication and data quite sticky. Part of the definition of stickiness is that it's recording things that are very everyday. We don't even think about it. It's like looking up directions to go to a restaurant or, you know, to go meet someone somewhere or to find out more information about a place you might not know much information about. These are mundane things. They're not special, right? They're not extraordinary. So I, I like that you're bringing up the mundaneness. We kind of get trapped in this thinking like it's not as important as it might be. And so then you have these extraordinary things like the well-documented wrongful arrest of, of multiple Black men in the United States, for example, which is, a, I think, a fairly explicit 
example of how um, someone's autonomy and dignity can be affected. Because the facial recognition technology or something. Yeah, exactly. What happened exactly? It, it was incorrect, but we sort of trusted it implicitly or something? Yeah, I think there was a, a you know, the use and, and perhaps the incomplete way of using facial recognition technology to sort of just conclude that at least three, you know, three men were sort of wrongfully placed in in situations and therefore arrested because of bad matches from facial recognition technologies. So that's one example. I think another one that is going to become more and more frequent is related to facial data situations where seemingly we have a lot of autonomy, where, you know, we're posting photos on social media or we're in, in the specific case that I'm thinking of, people used to post a lot of photos to the photo sharing site Flickr. And, you know, they'd post pictures of themselves, of their friends, you know, vacation, things like that. And, you know, it turned out that um, a lot of those photos were actually scraped as part of a, a massive facial recognition database called Megaface. Um, and, and folks didn't know about it in real time. And it was only really exposed in, in some recent reporting in the New York Times. And, and so people are in that database and, and they didn't choose to do that. Um, so on the one hand, you're sort of choosing to, to share your photos, but then you end up in a facial data set. You know, when you post to Facebook, you, you might be in, in Clearview AI's data set, for example, another company that has, has sort of made use of, of available photos online to create facial data of, of people. This is pivoting slightly like, but I guess I wanted to ask, like, what makes the datification of your face more special than other data than, say, like your genetic code? Why is it particularly more uh, concerning? Is it just the way we perceive ourselves through our faces? Or is it that, you know, cities are covered in cameras and it's easier to track faces than other data uh, for nefarious purposes? Yeah, I think you're sort of, I, I think both of those could be possibilities. I mean, my my sense of this is that our faces are such a central component to our identity, both at the individual level and then also at the social level, right? It's how we interact with others. You know, we all have one. It's pretty difficult to change your face, although, you know, you can, right? But in general, people have a face and they get one. And, and so you don't, it's not changeable. It's it's that on on that level, and that it's it's something that that people identify with and and really identify with uh, with certain with individuals, right? Um, I I think that that is the part that that really gets to to people is is that part, and it's the obvious part. It's the part that you go out in public with, right? You have you have to go outside with your face, and so it's different from like your DNA, which is not obvious to people who interact with you, and that that's a different type of biometric data that I think is is important as well. It's very much uh, you know identifying, but I do think the face that's that's something that we we share in in public interactions and that's also what what it makes it a challenging issue in terms of thinking about privacy right like what aspect of the of your face is private when in fact that is something that you you go out in in public with yeah there was a lot of enthusiasm about the age of big data and the wide range of benefits it would bring to us. Do you think we need to decide between allowing datafication or preserving human rights? In other words, is it an either or? Because all the big tech companies are collecting data on us way beyond our faces, you know, our location, our internet browsing habits, how late we stay up. 
etc. And it seems to be a necessary part of their business models. So I don't think datafication and human rights are at odds with one another. I think that human rights is a framework that's been developed, you know, internationally for you know since it's very much so since at least the end of World War II, if not before. Um, that's really a set of guide rails for how we should make policy choices or how they, you know, innovations should develop and how they affect the, the human existence. So I don't see it as a choice. I think datafication has happened. As you point out, there are corporate interests at play, but there's also technological developments that come from it that, that are beneficial. So I, I don't think it's an either or. I think it's more that human rights principles to date have been relatively absent in guiding the, tra- the trajectory of datafication. And in, in so much as human rights have been part of the conversation, I think it's been pretty piecemeal. I think there's a lot of concentration around ideas of privacy and consent, for example, or around uh, more recently freedom of expression. But I think it's really important to, and, and this is really where a lot of my work is, is going, is to think about the reasoning for human rights. So wh- why do we want human rights to begin with? Right. And, and again, I think it's about this idea of treating people as ends, of giving them the capacity to live their lives to at least a minimal standard. So it's about thinking about, OK, what kinds of impediments to that standard are created by datafication? And therefore, what are the things we should regulate or or even ban about datafication if it comes to the point where it's starting to really limit or impede people's autonomy or affect their dignity? So. I think that's really, it's not an oppositional relationship, right? And, and I think it's its more that one, you know, datafication has happened really quickly and, and we're struggling and we're grasping for ethical boundaries and, and for policy choices. And I think those could be better informed or they could be better created if we, we took into account human rights principles to think about how datafication is actually affecting humanity and how we're living our lives. Yeah. I mean, I go back to the idea of like that most of this is being used for mundane things. And I think of human rights as really fundamental sort of freedom, you know, freedom of expression. Do you think that we've reached sort of peak datafication yet? Or are we at sort of the tip of the iceberg where we're about to see some of the more infringing aspects of how data can be used in the years ahead? So it's never easy to answer whether something's peak or not when you feel like you're in the middle of it, right? So I think that's a in a way, so I'm gonna, I'm not gonna answer that part because I'm not sure, right? And, and I think because we're still in the in the middle of of these rampant changes to our the way we live our lives. But look, I think we're in the era of, to best put it in Mark Zuckerberg's words, right? That datafication has moved fast and broken things, and these we're living through the broken things part, you know, where we, we realize that. That datafication, that that technologies like facial recognition are really affecting the way that, you know, we live our lives. They're affecting both rights that we think about, like in terms of rights to protest or or freedom of expression, but also I think it it has other ramifications that perhaps haven't yet come to bear or haven't been as as publicized. And and I think this is really the point because we're starting to realize, hey, these technologies have some, maybe they have some benefit, right? They're, they're definitely beneficial ways to use facial recognition technologies, but now there are these consequences and we need to develop a vocabulary, at least a set of concepts on which to hang some of the concerns that we have. And so again, this is why I think human rights gives us that language. It's a framework that's out there that exists that really outlines 
both what individuals deserve, but also to a certain extent, a collective sense of good. It kind of helps us understand what things are essential and important to, to a human life. So I think that these sort of more classic civil rights are important, but I actually think datification and, and facial recognition technologies more specifically do have you know, effects on other rights that are, you know, that are established human rights, such as the right to education, our rights to health, our right to work. Um, these are these are places where that technology or those technologies are making forays as well. Yeah, it's definitely, it seems like it's at this sort of, we're at the frontier of some new uses of data that will start to bring these concerns to light. Um, but given the way we've proceeded now that we're this far down the path in what's largely unregulated and we'll never know who owns some of our data, you know, it could be stored on a server in some island we've never heard of where the laws are completely different than the laws here about how it can be used. Is there any way we can sort of preserve like our human rights or our autonomy or recoup some of the data we've lost? I think this is why it's it's really important to, to really start talking very seriously about human rights in the conversation around datafication, not just around specific rights that like like, you know, like privacy that people have really focused on, but in general to think more broadly about human rights, to think about, the, again, the purpose of human rights and why they're important in protecting our autonomy and dignity and how datafication challenges or changes the way that we, we enjoy those those values. And so, you know, something I've really been thinking about, we have, we're surrounded by data intensive technologies and we use them all the time. But I think many of us actually lack what I, what I think about as data literacy. So not digital literacy, not how to use the tools like the internet or your, your smartphone, but actually understanding what datafication means, what its implications are what kinds of data are being collected or can be collected, and then what the implications of that data collection might be in the present and the future. I think that we, we really need to engage those questions and to really become more data literate uh, because we are dependent, a lot of us are dependent on these very data-intensive technologies and we enjoy them and they, they offer benefits. But at the same time, they're coming at a cost, right, which is this huge data collection. So I think without an essential sense of data literacy, we as individuals and as societies won't be able to demand the types of laws and changes in corporate practice that maybe we want. We just we just don't have the conceptual knowledge to really even come up with with ways that are you know that we can think about our our rights being infringed upon. Yeah. Well, it was great to have you on the show, Wendy. Thank you so much for coming and sharing your knowledge about what's going to be a huge topic for many years to come. Thank you, Gabe. It's great to be here. That was Wendy Wong, a professor of political science at the University of Toronto and Canada Research Chair in Global Governance and Civil Society. Thank you for listening to Down to Business and sharing any feedback, good or bad, for rating us on your podcast or for sharing an episode with someone else. Thanks, as always, to the incredible team that helped produce this episode, including originally composed music and production from Bryce Hall, editing by Yadula Hussein, and web support by Pamela Heaven. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of Down to Business. But until then, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com or by signing up to receive any of our five weekly newsletters delivered directly to your inbox and covering the economy, energy, finance, the workplace, and investing.